from Washington, D.C., the swamp itself, this is The Week's Worst with Allen and Veda. I'm Dr. Stephen J. Allen, Vice President and Chief Investigative Officer of the Capital Research Center. And I'm Matthew Vadum, Senior Vice President at Capital Research Center and Editor-in-Chief of BombThrowers.com. And I'm Jay Klein, Media Producer at the Capital Research Center, and I'll be moderating this podcast in which we dig through the news for stories that we think are the most outrageous, the most ridiculous, the worst. So for this week, uh, to give background, on July 21st, former Goldman Sachs and Skybridge Capital banker Anthony Scaramucci, a.k.a. The Mooch, was appointed White House Communications Director. A few days later, Scaramucci gave an expletive-laden interview to Ryan Liz of The New Yorker, criticizing Rance Priebus and Steve Bannon in particular. In response, Chief of Staff Priebus left the administration and was replaced by General John F. Kelly, who then fired Scaramucci. This is part of a number of staff changes uh, at the White House. Scaramucci only lasted 10 days after his appointment. So first question for you guys, the interview Scaramucci gave to Liza is unlike anything I've ever seen from a White House before. Rumors were at the time that Trump supported his actions. What do you make of this and do you think he deserved to get fired? I think it was wonderful reality TV, but I don't think it's necessarily good for the country. I look. You you can't have somebody say the things that he said uh, in the context that he said it. I mean, he's talking to someone who's a very strong ideological enemy of this administration. Uh, he gives what I guess is supposed to be off the record. Uh, I mean, that's that's insane to to assume that that's actually going to be uh, even if even if that's the agreement that the that they would keep that agreement. Uh, a reporter who hates you. Uh, Poor Liza. It sounded like it was supposed to be on the record, actually, which is even more. Shocking. Right, and and I don't uh, I don't dispute that because uh, it's just you know you you assume that something like that is going to be on the record even if the agreement is for it to be off the record. Uh, I, I I know some smart people in politics who just have a rule they don't give off the record conversations to reporters. Anyway, you and then you say things like uh, you know one of the people you work with uh, at a high level is a uh, is a paranoiac. Uh, and, and then you use a cuss word to describe him, and then the other guy is uh, uh, commits a uh, an anatomically impossible act. And you, um, you know, you, this is not something that the White House communications director should be doing. I get the personality there that there's sort of this idea that well, we'll get a uh, we'll get a tough talking New Yorker uh, to be the representative of the president, who's a tough talking New Yorker, uh, and at least that they'll be compatible in that way. But uh, that this was bound to to uh, lead to disaster. I don't know why he would be... I mean, the communications director is supposed to be the person who, like, comes up with the big strategy for getting your ideas out. Uh, and uh, Scaramucci's got a lot of uh, positive qualities, I'm sure, but uh, that is not that is not uh, something that you would expect someone like him to be, uh, be good at doing. So why he was in there in the first place uh, beyond his compatibility with the president, I don't know. Do you believe the rumors that Trump supported and perhaps even asked him to give that interview? Uh, you know, it, 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 sometimes people try that kind of thing and they end up getting burned. The, the president has done that with reporters even recently uh, for various publications. Uh, you know, you ought to be giving your scoops to your friends and uh, you shouldn't be uh, and you should never, 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 never trust uh, any, any the the New Yorker or New York Magazine or the New York Times 
or strangely, any publication that has New York in the name seems uh, seems to be suspect. Uh, there used to be a New York Observer, I think, that was a good paper, and maybe the New York Post. But but basically, you 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 want to stay away from folks who are uh, who are just going to twist whatever you say, uh, uh, you know, or, or or use what you say uh, that you think is off the record. Sometimes you know, you, people all the time in politics they they uh, they fall for this trick of talking to. Rep- I was a reporter, uh, you know. I, if if you were my ideological adversary, it's not a good idea for you to talk to uh, to me and then claim it's off the record. And that's unfortunately something they keep falling for in this administration. It seems bizarre to me that the agenda of Scaramucci's interviews seem to be to push out uh, Reince Priebus, but then he's fired by Priebus's replacement, uh, General Kelly. Do you have any thoughts on what might have happened behind the scenes? Is this just sheer incompetence? Or do you think internal games were being played? I, I I thought that the interview was manic, maybe even maniacal. And so I am not at all surprised that uh, Scaramucci got canned for it eventually. Uh, but, you know, it's hard to know exactly what was going on in his head. Um, he, he, he just showed himself right there to be unworthy of the position just by, if this is what happened, just by trusting the reporter to keep those comments, all the expletives especially, um, off the record. That shows very poor judgment in my view. Well, with regard to the the irony there that you pointed out, uh, or seeming irony, look, somebody's head was going to roll over the failure to to get rid of Obamacare. Uh, and uh, there was, you know, at one point, uh, the president was uh, standing there with the secretary of uh, HHS and said, hey, this guy, uh, you know, he might lose his job if this uh, if this uh, repeal doesn't go through. Um, and it wasn't him. It turned out it was Priebus. I, I, I wasn't surprised uh, after that because somebody was going to go, and, and Priebus was basically the person who was overall in charge of making sure that happened. And if, you know, and, and that, that those are the skills that he brought to the administration was that he was this political inside player and knew how to work, uh, particularly with uh, Paul Ryan, uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, and uh, and but then all, all the all the people in Congress. Uh, he, he having uh, he Priebus having been chairman of the Republican National Committee, being able to work with at least with the Republicans in Congress, and uh, and he wasn't able to deliver. And this is a president who who does not like it when you don't but, deliver. But Steve wasn't Reince Priebus also widely suspected by conservatives of being the chief um, leaker within the Trump White House? That was certainly—I I, I think that's true. You could say that he was the one suspected. Uh, it'll be a while before we sort out how much leaking was going on. And, and of course, you know, people people play that game uh, in, in, in Washington all the time. It's important to separate the leaks that are, you know, inside baseball, who's up, who's down, uh, where you're stabbing your coworkers in the back. Uh, it's important to separate those from, say, the national security leaks, uh, such as leaking the transcript of the president's conversations with foreign leaders, because that is a crime, and someone should spend a lot of time in jail. That hurts any president, uh, any any uh, administration. It's not something that uh, is just limited to Donald Trump. If, if foreign leaders don't have the confidence 
confidence they can talk to the president of the United States and have it be kept confidential, uh, then how do you do negotiations on anything? It's uh, it's a total disaster. So that that said, um, I think Priebus, oh, he probably pl- played the leak game a lot. Uh, and uh, that that's what Washington insiders do. <laughs> So then it sounds like it would be fair to say you don't think uh, Scaramucci's firing were internal games because already, you know, Rance would have been on his way out because of the failure of Obamacare more so than uh, Scaramucci's interviews. Look, you know, it's taking him a while to, to, to settle down in this administration. And I think... A lot of that is something that, that can't be helped. Uh, let me defend uh, the president a, a, a little bit here. They, the fact is that as of, say, 1984, uh, all the Republican hiring uh, for the various uh, administrations has been in the control of the, of the Bush family, ultimately. <laughs> that is to say, President uh, George H.W. Bush and then President George W. Bush uh, and their administrations. And halfway through the Reagan administration or so, the, the Bushies uh, uh, pretty much uh, took, over, took over hiring, or at least did to a large degree. Remember James Baker, uh, who had been Bush's campaign manager, was Ronald Reagan's chief of staff. Uh, and I sort of encountered a lot of the, the power of the, of the Bush people because in 1984 they were already laying the groundwork to have Bush succeed Reagan in 1988, and they didn't want anyone criticizing him at all within the Republican Party, and they came down hard on anybody who would do that. And so they were trying to get all their people in place for what they hoped would be a Bush administration. Uh, and so as of 1984, Bushy's control, uh, uh, the uh, hiring on the Republican side. Well, what that means is that you had an entire generation uh, or more of Reagan uh, activists, uh, of people who were uh, conservative, libertarian, whatever philosophy you would say, populist, uh, oriented toward working class Republicans. Uh, you had an entire generation of people in that category who were either kept out of the administration or you know just never had an opportunity to serve in the government to get the experience that you need. So Trump comes in, and it's been a third of a century since there's been hiring of people who are oriented towards sort of the Trump way of doing things, the Trump way of thinking, grassroots, uh, uh, the grassroots America, working class people that he, he seeks to represent. Uh, and uh, they've all been establishment, country club Republicans. Uh, and, uh, and some good people get in too, but, but, but that's been the orientation. And he has to staff an administration. Well, where does he get people? You know, if, if you're saying we haven't hired anybody in that category for a third of a century, uh, if you're going to hire experienced people, you've got to hire people essentially from the other side. And uh, and then you've, you hope to leaven that with some, some new folks uh, who are ideologically in line with you and get the right mix of people. But it's really tough. And, and I warned about this early on. Uh, I don't know that they appreciated the, the extent of the problem. And then combined with the bureaucracy trying to do everything it can to undermine the Trump administration, um, that leaves them understaffed. It leaves them without people who know how to fight in Washington, know how things run, uh, and uh, puts them at a great disadvantage. So I, I definitely want to go down the path of, of talking more about the staffing at the White House. But before we do that broadly— Let's talk about one really major staff change, which is uh, General John F. Kelly of, as chief of staff. He seems to be a, you know, have been brought in to bring order to what many have called a, a chaotic White House 
to end the leaks, um, to formalize a lot of the processes that they've had. How do you guys feel about his selection? And do you think he'll be able to solve some of the problems many feel this White House has had? I think it's um, interesting that President Trump has this um, fetish for (laughs) men in uniform. Uh, But seriously, um, you know, from what I know about um, General Kelly, uh, he seems like a uh, like a good pick. Uh, He seemed to do a decent job at uh, the Department of Homeland Security, although some have criticized him for not being hardcore enough on immigration, which is part of um, on immigration enforcement, which is part of the DHS um, portfolio. Um, in terms of his ideology and his politics, um, I'm more curious as to what my colleague, Dr. Allen, mm-hmm. thinks, because this is something I don't know a lot about in terms of Kelly. Well, I came to Washington to work for a career military officer who had been elected to the United States Senate. And if memory serves, he was the first one uh, the first career military uh, person to be uh, elected to, to the Senate and maybe to Congress for decades. You're referring for decades. to Jeremiah Denton. Jeremiah Denton, who was, Alabama. A, who was a brilliant man, and uh, but uh, was and, and was elected in part because he wasn't a politician. Uh, people wanted somebody who was a plain speaker, uh, who would not uh, go along with what we now call political correctness, and, uh, and, and that's why they voted for him. But the downside of that was sometimes he would say things that a politician would have learned from experience not to say. He would uh, he would do things that caused problems politically for him unnecessarily uh, because he didn't understand the rules of the game. Brilliant in foreign policy, brilliant in national security, and uh, was a, was a, a great man, great senator. But there were problems, and that's why they brought me in. I had uh, political experience; had been a you know political reporter and had worked in the Reagan campaign and so on. And they brought me in to try to try to smooth things out, and it was tough. So I learned a lot about military people over the years working in politics. Uh, sometimes we'd recruit people to run for office uh, uh, in the in the subsequent years or to run government agencies. Uh, and there's a certain mindset, you know. You're you're in if you're career military, uh, you live in a world that's uh, uh, command and control. Uh, the, the idea of the freewheeling, free market of politics, uh, ideas, economics, it's not necessarily something that you're as familiar with as as you would be if you were, say, someone coming from a business background or even someone who had been a political activist. Uh, you, uh, you, you know, President Eisenhower always had that problem that he'd give somebody an order and then it just wouldn't be carried out because it would have to go through the bureaucracy and then it, would, it wouldn't happen. Um, I think Peggy Noonan the other day cited a, 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 an old story about President Eisenhower that, of course, he had spent most of his life in a, in a, in a situation where free market economics didn't apply. He was in the, in the army and uh, uh, he, um, he had no problem with high taxes when he started out because, hey, it was high taxes that helped us win World War II. And so that's how he looked at it until finally after he's president a while, then the business community comes to him and sort of explains to him what high taxes are doing to the economy, and he, and it, he gets it. But here was a brilliant man. It just wasn't part of his perspective. And I think that's what 
uh, you might have a problem now with so many people, military people, in what are traditionally political positions, um, if you don't have uh, some leavening, if you don't, you know, one thing, one advantage is you expect competence. You expect that maybe they'll clean things up as far as all these uh, all these leaks, all the chaos, the backstabbing. Uh, if people are told, you know, you're going to lose your job if you if you do that kind of thing, and it and it, and and uh, that threat is taken seriously, then you might have less of a feeling of chaos uh, that you have had in this administration. But, um, you know, there there are pluses and minuses. Uh, I worry about having too many people who are military and uh, who are not... uh, well, what was the what was the thing that uh, Sam Rayburn, the famous speaker, said of uh, of the Kennedy cabinet? That he wished to, he just wished one of them had run for sheriff. Uh, if, if one of them had had the kind of political experience you get from running for local office or running running for something like sheriff, and uh, and I think we may have that with uh, with all the uh, military people in the White House. Now we're seeing that with the purge of people in the national security area who are uh, the Trump loyalists who believe the things that the president uh, expressed in the campaign. And I, I think it's fair to say it's, it's a purge. Uh, one after another, keeps, they keep falling. So let's talk about that. That was some of the other staffing changes that we alluded to earlier. So if I understand the situation correctly, and Steve, you can correct me. So H.R. McMaster is the head of the National Security Council. And there were a bunch of people that um, uh, Flynn, who was the previous head before he was pushed out because of uh, Russia stuff and lying to the vice president, uh, brought in a bunch of Trump loyalists with some different views on national security issue issues. And now they're uh, slowly, one by one, um, losing their jobs. Is that accurate? Yeah. And again, it's the problem I alluded to before. Uh, Under both Bushes and under Obama, there was a belief in in globalism, in the international, uh, you know, the new world order, as as President George H.W. Bush called it, where you'd have these interlocking alliances and relationships that would bring stability after the Cold War. Um, none of that worked out very well, uh, and you ended up with uh, with Al Qaeda rising as a threat, and then nine eleven. You ended up with the disastrous Iraq War. You ended up in a situation where we're still in Afghanistan, uh, and uh, which I understand is very frustrating to the president. He keeps saying, "How come we're still in Afghanistan after all these years?" Uh, and um, the people who made those decisions, unfortunately, those are the people that have the experience that you can bring in. So what you need is you you know you find those few people who were out there who were critics who said that the Iraq War would be a disaster ahead of time, or who who warned of the rise of Al Qaeda, uh, or warned of ISIS uh, later on. Remember that uh, President Obama thought they were the the JV team uh, and not really a threat. Uh, and you had a lot of people in the in the um, national security establishment who who were telling him that. Uh, so you, you find the people who are the dissidents and you elevate them. But uh, you also need people who can make the make the trains run on time, who can get the paperwork work pushed through. And uh, and and so you need a balance. And right now we have a situation where it looks like everybody who came in with Flynn, the dissident types, um, one by one, they're 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 leaving. Uh, and uh, even even you had a situation where um uh, Ezra Co- Cohen-Watnick, who was a fellow who uh, was uh, 
had had been marked for being for termination by McMaster early on as a as a Flynn guy. Uh, he w- there was an intervention by Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner, the president's uh, son-in-law, who were normally on opposite sides of things, and they both came in and said, no, 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 don't, don't, don't get rid of this guy, and they didn't, but now they've gotten rid of him. So, uh, and, and of course, you had Rich Higgins, who wrote a memo, oh my gosh, outlining how the, uh, the deep state and the Islamofascists and people in the media uh, are trying to undermine the president's agenda, and uh, oh, this memo uh, circulated around. That became something of a you know of a crime, and there was a list of people who had who were Obama administration holdovers, uh, and uh, that uh, it was suggested that they be gotten rid of. And well, you're not allowed to do that kind of thing. So so Higgins is gone, and and you have a lot of the the sort of the people in the in the in the media who don't like anyone who uh, challenges authority on national security. That, well, they used to like it back back in the old days when it was like George W. Bush in. Uh, they loved the people who would uh, challenge his uh, national security beliefs. But uh, nowadays they, they want to uh, uh, you know pretend that the deep state doesn't exist, which they used to write about year after year after year. Uh, they want to pretend that, uh, you know, that there aren't people who would be interventionists, want us to get it into unnecessary wars. Uh, all that now is a Trump fantasy, even though they used to write about it all the time. Uh, well, uh, you know, people who challenge that, they, uh, uh, they want to come down hard on them. And, and so somebody like Higgins writes a memo, expresses what to me are reasonable views, but they're ridiculed in the media and he has to go. And of course, KT McFarlane, uh, people, a lot of people know her because she had been on Fox News a lot. Uh, and she came in very early on. Uh, with, she was a, a Flynn person, and then she ended up getting pushed out and shoved off to be uh, a, what ambassador to Singapore. Uh, and you go down the list, uh, one person after another, um, leaving not that many to challenge uh, the uh, establishment point of view. And uh, that's something that you you don't want to you don't want to have that. It, it, one of the things that's interesting about when the CIA was founded. They um, pulled disproportionately from the Ivy League, particularly from Harvard and Yale and Princeton and uh, the University of Virginia and uh, West Point. And what they got was sort of a a groupthink. Um, You had people who didn't know that much about how economies work, so they wildly overestimated the size of the Soviet economy. Uh, They had it at like uh, 59% of the size of the U.S. economy when it was really 33%. They had the Soviet's economy surpassing the size of the U.S. economy by 1993, according to a 1957 projection that they made. And all the Cold War decisions were based on that. Uh, And that strung out the Cold War, perhaps decades longer than it would otherwise have have lasted and led to many, many people losing their their lives. These were not really beliefs that could be justified, but this was known as the, um, because Yale predominated, this was known as the Yale way of thought or EWOT. And they even would, uh, in the U.S. and British intelligence communities, they would often sing the the whip and poof song, uh, the Yale version, uh, to sort of indicate that, uh, you know, we're in with those Yaleys, man, that dominated the intelligence community. And um, and unfortunately, the lack of diversity led to, and lack of understanding of economics, uh, led to a lot of bad decisions that were made. And you you want to have a wide variety of folks in there. You don't want to have everybody uh, thinking along the same lines, and that's what you get. Unfortunately, when you have uh, too many people from um, who have who have long distinguished records of service, because one of the ways they got long distinguished records of service was by um, 
keeping their heads down and not challenging the status quo. And uh, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster has also been whacking people who take a hard line on Islamofascism, for example. He, it was reported he didn't even want Trump to talk about Islam in overseas speeches and that uh, people who um, want to identify the threat that Islam poses um, are just being pushed out, um, you know, dubbed crackpots or extremists or whatever, uh, when, when really they're not. They're just, they're just representing a more realistic view uh, of how that problem should be dealt with. But uh, McMaster won't tolerate this, apparently, because it conflicts with his worldview. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because I, I don't know if I necessarily exactly agree. So first of all, I'm sure both of you would agree that when it comes to the people on the National Security Council, yes, we want a diversity of views, but ultimately there is at least some degree of care of whether those views are correct and accurate or not correct, and at least to give H.R. McMaster's view, whether we agree with it or disagree with it, it seems to be that they're pushing out people that they think are wrong on uh, national security. So do you just agree with that premise fundamentally that that is what hap- that's what's happening? Well, I, I disagree with those who think that McMaster is somehow uh, disloyal or not a good American. I mean, you, you see a lot of crazy things anytime you have a conflict like this uh, out there in the in the world, the internet world, where everyone gets to express an opinion and have it known to the world. Um, but you know, you you have different mindsets, and uh, so uh, you're going to have a, a conflict with people like Steve Bannon, who are more concerned about uh, the the clash of civilizations, and really, that's that's kind of an unfair way of characterizing it because uh, I tend to agree with most of what the people in that wing say. Um, but I've expressed on this program uh, quite often that I think there's a civil war within Islam, that there are a lot of uh, uh, good Muslims who believe in peace and freedom and, and modernity, um, and that they're in conflict with the ones who want to uh, continue uh, oppressing women, subjugating women, and murdering homosexuals, and and basically waging a war on everything they consider to be Western values. Uh, there's a conflict there and that we should side with the good guys and fight the bad guys. Uh, and that seems to be what the Trump administration is doing. That's what that uh, the business of the conference that was held uh, recently uh, and uh, where the uh, Saudis took a prominent role. <laughs> and uh, but but mainly you want to team up with folks, you know, the relative moderates like in, in Jordan and so forth. And of course, we're always I understand that uh, relative the emphasis on the word relative. But the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the idea is that uh, we have this fight that is ideological, uh, that is real, uh, that Islamofascism is a serious threat uh, to our uh, society because of, uh, you know, the way the, the disproportionate impact that terrorism can have and uh, the fear that it strikes into people and that causes you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. We have the government spying on every American right now and all their phone calls and all their emails. Why? Because of 9-11. So you want to prevent, you know, 9-11 is bad as the horror of 3,000 people dying. It was also that it changed the way our 
government works in, in a way that takes away our freedom. And, and you don't want that kind of thing to happen. The other thing is uh, China, seeing China as a serious adversary in the world. Uh, that's a part of this uh, belief on the part of the, uh, the dissidents uh, who are being purged. Uh, also that Russia is not necessarily the greatest threat, that maybe there are things, situations where we can make deals with Russia um, for, the, for the mutual benefit of our two sides. Which you, uh, you, you mean like in fighting the um, the Islamofascists? Exactly, just as we had to team up with uh, Stalin to beat beat Hitler. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to accept that the other side uh, that they're good guys in order to team up with them to to defeat a bigger threat. Uh, and uh, NATO- and it just reminds me of um, from the James Bond movie Quantum of Solace. The CIA officer in the movie says. Uh, when when his colleague is criticizing them doing business with um, notorious types, he says, "Oh yeah, we should only do business with nice people." Right, and the pe- <laughs> people who are critics of of the of the uh, Trump folks. Right. Well, they were the ones who uh, didn't have a problem with uh, the NATO countries not living up to their obligations. That seems to be working out well. That they are upping their their contributions. They're spending on uh, on national defense, which shows they're serious. Uh, and the same thing is true with uh, they 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 opposed all these guys opposed Brexit. They thought it would be a disaster. Uh, and uh, so they're just wrong on a lot of things. And you need you need someone to balance that out, and that's what the uh, the Trumpists uh, are for. So I agree with everything you just said, but I read the Rich Higgins uh, memo, and number one, for a point of clarification, uh, the reason given why he was fired was not per se the content of the memo, but the fact that it was not his job to write and distribute that memo, especially to the president (laughs) without the consensus of the NSC, and especially given the uh, military mindset, um, going out of the structure of command is something that could, you know, be a fireable offense. But yeah, yeah, you know what, in 1984, I wrote wrote a a paper on how the Soviet Empire, the Soviet Union were on the verge of collapse. And that was considered crazy by a lot of people. And I tried to get that as distributed uh, distributed as widely as I could. And I see something like that here. The idea that, oh my gosh, he, he, he was just showing it to too many people. Too many people were getting access to this information. I'm sorry. I have a hard time. I understand you need protocol. I understand, you know, we have too many people putting things on the president's desk and then he reads them and he tweets about them. And I get all that. I get why you have to have some military uh, discipline, but that's a real weak reason for for firing somebody. I I don't think that is that weak reason, first of all. Not that I'm necessarily saying that was the true reason. It's very possible that it was actually for the views. But I do think that's reasonable and plausible. I mean, imagine if you had an employee who then wrote a, a memo contradicting what your views are and then jumped over you and gave it directly uh, uh, to your boss without even so much as your feedback polishing it. I bet that would make you mad. 
Well, first of all, why are they having, you know, the, 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 the memo views were kind of standard stuff from the Trump campaign. So uh, you, you have to go a long way to saying that uh, someone should be fired for expressing those views in whatever forum. Look, I get it. And maybe maybe it was a problem because uh, memos like that should generally be anonymous for a reason. Uh, and that is so they don't come back to bite you. And uh, and that's the procedure that maybe should have been used, which is put it out there, but don't put your name on it. Uh, and I know that sounds like uh, inside Washington stuff, but sometimes you do have to do that. And you, you see that historically, a lot of, uh, of the great strategy memos uh, have been at least initially anonymous when they were written. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, you know, I'm not going to necessarily defend that one aspect of it, but uh, it's really scary that someone would write something that's, um, uh, that expresses what the president said during his campaign uh, and uh, that makes him different from the previous uh, candidates that, that people you know, were fed up with the, the, the Bush interventionism and Obama's uh, uh, leading from behind and sort of this, uh, uh, this uh, uh, idea of, of s- s- allowing countries to express extremism and we're just going to go along with it and we're going to facilitate it. Uh, look up Presidential St- Study Directive 11 for an example of how that can lead to disaster. That was the thing they came up with on the Middle East that led to all the horrors that came from the uh, Arab Spring. And and so, you know, I I, I get that, but uh, I want want people like that in good positions in the administration. And uh, sometimes you have to just take take something like that and, and keep the person around, at least keep them in some position so that they can uh, continue to to discuss these issues. Well, let's talk about the actual views that were in the Higgins memo, because I read them and I don't know that they necessarily were specifically the point of view that Trump had expressed during the campaign. There were bits and pieces, certainly, but more so they seemed like the views of uh, the Center for Security Policy and Frank Gaffney, which is somebody we're all familiar with. Matthew, you just put out a book with the Center for Security Policy. And it's the, called Team yes, Jihad. And uh, you did an event with uh, Gaffney promoting it. And, and it was a fabulous yeah. event. The Log Cabin <laughs> Republicans were there, and they're fabulous. Um, indeed. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm familiar with their views as well because we interviewed a number of them for our film Soviet Islam with Trevor Loudon, which is available on our YouTube channel. And that, too, is fabulous. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate that. But I, I, I do still have some questions and problems with these views, especially being advocated at that high level in the administration, which is fundamentally what the Higgins memo said was it said there are essentially Islamo-fascists, which I can't remember if that's the word in the memo, but that's the word I think he says Islamists, which Uh, is... Islamists, perhaps. I prefer Uh, Islamo-fascists because it makes it more clear what you're saying, but anyway. Yeah. Um, And the left, um, the radical left, socialists, communists, Marxists, uh, share in... Agenda, which is against the United States, and therefore they have, whether actively or passively, uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, f- formed an alliance through their shared agenda, and that this is a major threat to the United States. 
Um, I don't know that I agree that it is a major threat to the United States. I don't know if this is as serious as North Korea or actual Islamists who are in other countries. Certainly, it's something we should be concerned about it. But to treat it as if this is the primary threat to national security right now uh, seems to me relatively unfounded and hyperbolic. So that was my thought on the memo. Would you guys push back on that? Look, there's an alliance between— I'll I'll let Steve push back on my behalf. Exactly. Uh, As Matthew has reported, uh, look, there's an alliance between the radical left, uh, which unfortunately is now the mainstream left— and uh, and the Islamofascists, and this goes everything from if you look at uh, you look at the far left um, member of Parliament George Galloway, who was uh, ousted from the Labour Party, the left wing party in, in in Britain, and then ended up as the candidate of a coalition with the uh, the Islamofascists, and that got him reelected to Parliament. Called you know? the Respect Party. The Respect Party, and then you look at uh, how uh, the blind sheikh, uh, his lawyer, uh, was uh, William Kunstler's sidekick, the famous radical leftist attorney. Uh, in in the United States, who represented every left wing cause, and his sidekick then was the lawyer for the for the uh, blind shake, and who was recorded uh, talking with him about how they had you know things in common, basically the the the, the U S. And, and capitalism as represented by the U S. These were the things that they had in common. And you're even. referring to the late attorney Lynn Stewart. Lynn Stewart, exactly, who ended up being convicted. I believe is the only uh, non-Muslim who has been convicted of of being uh, someone aiding. Uh, Al Qaeda, uh, and uh, in the right, United and I believe her client, the blind sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman, was convicted um, under the rarely prosecuted offense of seditious conspiracy. Right, yeah, he was behind the, uh, the the landmarks plot, which is both landmarks in in New York City. It was connected to nine eleven. He was actually the spiritual leader of uh, of Al Qaeda. Uh, he was in on the um, the original attack on the World Trade Center back in nineteen ninety three, and so he, he was behind the brutal um, attack. I think it was in ninety seven of uh, on uh, tourists in Luxor, Egypt. Something like 50 people were killed. Right. And here Lynn Stewart is, who's a prominent left-wing attorney, uh, and she's the one who's making it possible for him to transmit his messages to his uh, uh, his minions uh, by pretending she's uh, talking to her client and that his uh, views are being translated. And the translator was actually the person who was talking with him. So anyway, the point is that you can go through one thing after another going up to the Democratic National Convention uh, and Hillary Clinton's campaign. And Hillary Clinton saying that if you're uh, if you're that Muslims are peaceful and tolerant people and have nothing whatsoever to do with terrorism. And as I say, uh, it is true that many Muslims uh, don't have anything to do with terrorism and are great people. Uh, it is also true that uh, much of the world's uh, terrorism, uh, probably the majority of the world's terrorism at this point, uh, is connected to the uh, civil war within Islam. So you have these uh, these political alliances. Every time you attack radical Islam, uh, you're attacked from the left, if you're somebody like uh, Matthew or me. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just very clear that there's a political alliance there. And so for someone to report on it and write about it and uh, to expose it, you know, in this memo, again, I don't have a, I don't, I, th- I think that's reflecting reality. Well, yeah, and I think that it, um, it behooves people in that kind of position 
to make sure that the members of the National Security Council uh, are well informed on these matters. They need to know what's going on. They can reject the advice, the opinions, but they have to at least be given them. So, you know, it's, it doesn't strike me as a good place to be um, enforcing conformity of thought. I, I don't agree with that uh, either. And I think this was more a, a chain of command issue in, in my personal opinion. But I, I would also... Well, then keep why, it, why are all the other people disappearing at the same time? I, I don't necessarily mean he was fired accurately because of the... I mean, I mean you, you may be right in this I, one particular I'm just case. Saying, I'm just saying that view, it is a pattern. No, no, no. I, I, I agree with you. I'm saying, in my opinion, the reason it was unacceptable was less because of the view, uh, the view itself and more the chain of command issue. I'm not necessarily saying... H.R. McMaster's opinion of why he did it matches my opinion. Right. I'm just saying I do think the chain of command issue is an issue. And by the way, I would add yeah. I would add another criticism to the memo, uh, and that is it was uh, it was obviously written for people who are familiar with terms in political science and a certain way of arguing, and often people who hold these views uh, use buzzwords, they use terms of art, uh, and uh, they talk about it being Maoist and, and so forth. And, and that's all true. But, uh, you know, it's, it's like one time I took a, a scientific paper on uh, on genetics and I showed it to somebody and I just chopped it up. And I, and, and when I showed it to the person, uh, he said, this, this guy sounds crazy. Because it did. Out of context, not knowing what all the words mean, it kind of sounded crazy. Uh, and that's what this thing is. I, I saw the excerpts that were printed by The Atlantic and uh, and then the commentaries. And the commentaries were, can you believe someone said this crazy thing? And then they quoted some person at the White House without naming that person who said, can you believe this you know, uh, excrement and, uh, uh, that the person said, uh, you know, because that's what, if you don't know what any of this means and you've never read anything like this before and have not been exposed to these ideas and you read something like that, uh, the first response you're going to have is, wow, this kind of science sounds kind of wacky. Uh, and, uh, because, and, and, you know, so I, I would criticize it on that, in that regard. And as I say, I think the thing uh, should have been, Distribute it in a different way, <laughs> send it out anonymously so it doesn't get back to you, uh, or maybe found some, find some other forum. Uh, gosh, Comey was—maybe uh, we could find Comey's uh, friend, the uh, professor who links to the New York Times, and send it to somebody like that and have them get it out. Uh, yes, I, th I think the Atlantic was uh, equally hyperbolic uh, to the memo. And calling it a conspiracy theory I, I, I don't think is accurate, which they did. Um, and, and Matthew, per, perhaps you could correct me on this, but I don't even know if anybody is saying that an actual conspiracy, real or not, has necessarily happened here between Islamists and Marxists, but rather a quirk of history and confluence of agenda more so than actually conspiring. Is that accurate? I, I, th I think there's a thin line between those two things. They, they both have an interest in bringing down the United States. And by that, I mean political Islam and the left. So, of course, they're going to, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So, of course, they're going, they're going to work together. And they intend to work together. To me, that fits, that fits a definition of conspiring to do something. Well, what do you mean by work together. I mean, what are active shared projects? You know, I can think of somebody like 
Linda Sarsour, but I don't know if that's as much a who is a sorry, I should explain for our listeners. Linda Sarsour is an Islamist feminist, which seems rather <laughs> contradictory, right. who uh, spoke at the Women's March. Early it was one of the year. four main organizers. Yeah, and has gained a lot of media attention and advocates for Sharia law <laughs> as a legal system. And is uh, in favor of yeah. um, female genital mutilation. Subjugation that, of women. That's debatable. I, I I don't think she knew that. So what Matthew is referencing for our listeners is um, a comment she made about Ayan Hirsi Ali saying she should lose her vagina, um, which which is a terrible, terrible thing to say. And Ayan Hirsi Ali is somebody who has suffered. Uh, female genital mutilation. But I, I don't think there's evidence Sarsour knew that. And when Sarsour was alerted to that, she took the tweet down. But nonetheless, it was an absolutely egregious tweet. But uh, for somebody like uh, Sarsour, you know, it seems to be not less a concerted, you know, these leftists are going to help we with my forward my Islamist views. And so we're going to form an alliance and more so a, a just really confused perspective that she genuinely holds without, you know, some sort of agenda of, I'm just going to pretend to be with these people until we get to a certain point. Look, well, they, they both support totalitarianism, okay? Yes. One is an Islamic form of totalitarianism, and the other is a leftist form of it. So they are willing to work together to hurt the United States, um, to do whatever it takes in order to accomplish that. Um, so I, I think right now these various distinctions as to which uh, kind, you know, which kind of paradise on earth each side would prefer, uh, you know, among the leftists and the Islamists, is is kind of pointless. But uh, you know, because we're so far away from them achieving. Their um, their terrible objectives. So, yeah, it just strikes me as an academic argument. Look, the well, reality the reality is that the hard left, and I'm not talking about regular well, wait, li- regular on, liberals. Steve, let, let me just let me just say something for one second because I think that was exactly my point, Matthew. Which is, this is so far away from happening. But the Higgins memo was advocating for making this a priority. They're working together correctly. right now. They're working together well, in, it should in all be the, a every political cause in the United States. I mean, I mean, you know, that that's why you have this whole thing about you're you're an Islamophobe if you dare criticize the murder of homosexuals and the subjugation and mutilation of women. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, 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 and that's put forth by the so-called liberal media. And, uh, you know, look, we've had this kind of thing happen before. It happened in, in the 1930s when Hitler and Stalin formed an alliance. And on that day, on that very day, uh, all the hard left organizations, not the mainstream liberal organizations, but the hard left, the people who now unfortunately dominate the Democratic Party, the hard left, they all decided, you know, Hitler's not that bad a guy. And they were all running around saying, you know, the British Empire, we shouldn't give aid to the British Empire because, uh, you know, they're, they're if anything, they're, they're at least as bad as, as the Germans. Uh, and so and, and then as soon as Hitler and Stalin double crossed each other on that very day, they switched back. And the reason is that if you're one of the if you're one of these so-called progressives, you don't think things through. You believe the things that you're told. And so one minute, Russia, if you 
talk about Russia interfering in our elections, as as we talked about for decades, then, oh my gosh, you're a McCarthyite. You're a crazy conspiracy theorist who thinks Russia's interfering in our elections. Now, Russia's interfering in our elections. So, you know, they can flip like a switch. And that is just amazing, but that's what you get when you have the totalitarian mindset. Uh, you can You can change your beliefs from one second to the next, depending on what's needed. Steve, I, I don't disagree with you at all, and I certainly wouldn't want anything I said to be interpreted that way. Um, I but, think you guys should yeah. have a fist fight. That would be something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you go back. Look, Salman Rushdie was a hero for writing a book that was a satire making fun of Islam. And then he was uh, given the equivalent of, de- of a death sentence for that, and he became a hero to liberals around the world. I think that's, uh, I think that's terrible. That's and, obviously and, terrible. Right. And then, But then some guy posts a YouTube video, and oh my gosh, he's the guy who caused Benghazi. And anyone who criticizes Islam should be prosecuted. We should have an international agreement that you can't criticize Islam, as Hillary Clinton supported when she was Secretary of State. I mean, the, again, they just... Just flip, flip the switch. I mean, The Handmaid's Tale is a big uh, TV show now. On which channel is it? Is it is it Amazon? It's on Hulu. Hulu. Okay. And uh, unfortunately, I don't get it. That's why I haven't seen it. But um, but I I did see the movie that was there before, and I've seen you know I've, I haven't read through the entire book, but I've read the book. It was obviously uh, a satire of uh, Islam, but of course they had to put it as this is what would happen if the Christians took over. Uh, but it's actually a, a pretty at least the versions that I've seen were depicted sort of, the uh, uh, in a satirical way, uh, the practices of Islam. Because the left used to be against radical Islam and the, the, the oppression of women and so on. They used to be against that. Now, if you bring those things up, oh my goodness, you're, uh, you're an Islamophobe, you're a racist, you're a xenophobe. Uh, and, and because that's how their minds work. I don't disagree with anything you said at all. And I think those views are of Islamists and uh, leftists that would make common cause and defend uh, radical Islamic extremists is, I think, horrendous. But it's one thing to say that this is a threat that we face, uh, Islamism in the world, Islamism being the term for political Islam, uh, versus... The problem that I saw with the Higgins memo is you're going to say that views that make light of the threat that Islam poses domestically are a national security concern on par with the actual Islamists themselves in ISIS and the Middle East and places like that, or North Korea, or China, and that domestic policy views in a country where we're supposed to have freedom of thought are a major national security concern that should become a priority for the American national security apparatus. And I don't think that that's correct. It's something we should be concerned about. We should be working to change the wrong views that um, people who are too friendly to Islamism in America have. But I don't think that fringe left views defending Islamism are the pressing national security issue of our time. 
And if we look back at some of the other stuff that the Center for Security Policy and Frank Gaffney and people allied with them have pushed for is, you know, hating Obama because he wouldn't say the words radical Islamic terrorism. And I agree it's radical Islamic terrorism, but the reason that the Obama administration and others have not wanted to use those words publicly <laughs> is because it creates an us versus them mentality in the in uh, that, the that Muslim is absolutely world. what they said. Uh, <laughs> That's what they said was well, the justice. Well, this is Barack and, Obama. And there are Muslim who said, reformers. There are Muslim who reformers. Who said the future shall not belong leaning to... Muslim reformers like Zudi Jasser, but also Muslim reformers like uh, Majid Nawaz, who we want to be able to have influence. And when we create us versus That's them mentality, their that hurts the ability. As to I've said happen. before, if you if you deny the civil war within Islam, uh, then you're not take, doing what you should be doing, which is taking the side of the good guys against the bad guys. Okay, so when you have Barack Obama say to the United Nations, "The future shall not belong to those who would slander the prophet of Islam," which is any literally anyone who doesn't believe in in Islam uh, is someone slandering the prophet because you're not accepting him as the as right. The because in Islam, God. the way they look at it is. If you don't agree with Islam, if you don't um, stipulate to its tenets, uh, you are engaging in defamation. Exactly, which which the international said, community has right. been working OIC really hard said this. with the support of people like Hillary Clinton to ban, to take away our First Amendment right to criticize. And that was what, what the Benghazi thing went beyond. It wasn't just that they were trying to shift the blame. Remember, they did the same thing with that preacher in Florida who was going to burn a Terry Quran. Jones? Yeah, exactly. Now, I would never do that. I consider that disrespectful to my friends who are uh, Muslims who believe in peace and freedom and democracy. I would never do that. But he has a right as an American to do that. And 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 they were basically, the news media were inviting death threats against the guy. And at night, Nightline actually said something uh, at one point where they said, uh, well, now he's asked for police protection because of all the death threats. And then the, the reporter on Nightline says, well, good luck with that. In other words, he's really happy this guy's getting death threats. And that's how they were. And, and it's all consistent with an effort to make it illegal to criticize uh, religions uh, that uh, particularly with uh, radical Islam. And, and remember, Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, always supported the freedom to worship. And that's a term of art. That means something in the law. It's different from the freedom of religion. Freedom of religion means you can proselytize. Freedom of religion, you say, it means you could build a church in a, in a Muslim country. That would be freedom of religion. Uh, freedom of worship means you can keep it to yourself, but if it's in your own home, you can practice your religion. You just don't share it with anybody or try to... And those are very different concepts, okay? One is the American concept uh, that's in the First Amendment, and the other is the concept that's favored by Islamofascists, at least the moderate ones who, who you know, only want to subjugate uh, Christians and Jews and not kill them all. So, uh, you know, look, the left has an alliance with these people. I think it's important that we recognize that. It's important that we see, you know, it's not conspiracy theory, it's politics. You know, politics is a giant conspiracy. Uh, and if you start characterizing... <laughs> That's a good way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah. If you start characterizing everything, oh, he's crazy conspiracy theorist, because, uh, as I've said before, some conspiracies are real. And the idea of, you know, political parties are conspiracies, and they're real. And in this case, there is uh, this alliance between the left and the Islamofascist world, and it needs to be exposed. And that's what they were doing. That, that's what was being done in that memo. And all power to him. I don't 
don't disagree with you on on really anything that you said. I think that some of the things that you described that happened to people who spoke out about this are are, are terrible. But to give my last word, uh, you know, I think there's a different thing between being allowed to have and express these uh, views and wanting that to be the priority of uh, government policy. But I think we're at about time for our show. So if I could just wrap it up by getting back to our theme for today's episode. So with the firings at the NSC, with the changes of chief of staff, with Scaramucci out, is there chaos at the White House? And with Kelly here now, is that if there was chaos, is it about to go away? There's chaos in the White House, but that's what happens when you when you have a revolution, when you change things. Uh, if you go along with the status quo, you can make things happen nice and smooth and nobody complains. Uh, this is the price of trying to actually make positive change for this country. And that's what Donald J. Trump was elected to do. So um, I, I think there are a lot of things that he could do better in terms of managing the White House, but I think Steve is right in saying that, um, you know, there's going to be some turmoil. It is unavoidable. Um, the only way, well, let, the only way you can avoid it is to not try to bring in real reforms, and that is not what Trump is about, and uh, he's, he's here to stir things up. He's here to use that phrase, to drain the swamp. And, uh, man, I could just, just keep coming up with all sorts of horrible cliches and metaphors, like you got to break some eggs to make an omelet. Drain or, the swamp and you'll get all the alligators uh, snapping at you. That's right. You know, or you can't, <laughs> it, it, you feed the alligators, they only get bigger and come back and eat you later. A anyway, he, he's taking on um, cherished establishment beliefs and uh, the establishment is fighting back. So there is going to be some turmoil, and I'm fine with that. All right. I think that was a pretty great show. We went almost for an hour there. That's way longer than we ever What got. was the subject again? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that means we, uh, we had a pretty good discussion there. So that's our show for this week. We'll be back next week, and we hope you'll join us if you're not already. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on social media at Capital Research Center on Facebook and YouTube, and at Capital Research on Twitter. I'm Dr. Stephen J. Allen. And I'm Matthew Vadum. And I'm Jake Klein. Thanks for listening.